Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, this last week, um, I was reminded of a story Bill Cosby used to tell a lot. Bill Cosby used to talk about how strange his mom was an awful lot. And uh, he used to talk about it in the context of he would go and give her gifts that would make her life easier all the time. And he tells the story of how the time he gave his mom a, an electric toaster. And uh, she gave it to him. She thanked him. She thought, wow, this is so nice, so kind of you. And he says, well, yeah, you're welcome, Mom. Goes away. Comes back the next time and wakes up in the morning, goes down to eat breakfast. And he finds his mom making toast in the gas oven. And he goes, Mom, where's the electric toaster? She says, oh, it's up there. And she points to the top of the fridge, and it's up on top of the fridge, never been opened. And he goes, Mom, why don't you use that? And she just said, well, it's just because this is just the way I've always made toast. You know, so it doesn't matter. You can give me all the stuff you want. I'm just going to make it the way I do. Isn't that really true sometimes, I think, about the way we approach our faith? A lot of us have been taught many things about how to approach faith. We've been taught many ideas about what being a Christian is. We've been told it's being good. We've been told it's believing the right things. We've been told a lot of things. And yet, a lot of times, I think for many of us in our traditions and our growing up, we have ignored one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. We've left it boxed, sitting on top of the refrigerator, and that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about it so far in this series that we're calling uh, following, following the Goose. And we're using the Goose symbol because it's a, it's a, it's a Celtic symbol for the Holy Spirit. And uh, so we're talking about following the Holy Spirit. And so far in this series, we've talked about the fact that from the Bible, we've shown that, that actually for the follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit is to be the centerpiece of our experience as Christians. Not a peripheral, not an add-on. It's supposed to be the centerpiece. We've also talked about from the Scripture how in Acts 2 and from Paul's theology how the Holy Spirit is available for all of us to experience. It's not just for some super spiritual people. It's not for just the clergy or whatever. It's something, the Holy Spirit is something we were all to experience. We've also spent time talking about how um, from Paul's theology in Ephesians, how he invites us to pray almost this breath prayer every day as we're walking throughout the day. Holy Spirit, fill me. Come show me what you're doing to constantly be pursuing more of his presence with us. And last week we talked about how we all need a real tangible experience of love because if it's just words on paper, it means nothing. It doesn't change our lives. We all need to be touched And Romans 5 says the Holy Spirit is given to us to be poured out in our hearts for us to experience the very love and very presence of God himself. Today's passage that we're going to look at actually illustrates one of the core reasons why the Celtic people chose the wild goose as their symbol as opposed to the dove. It's because the dove sits around, it's kind of docile, it just kind of sits there and and, and, and and, and the Celtic, the goose is actually going somewhere, going somewhere meaningful. It's the word Latin, the Latin word, the, the idea of the migration. In Latin, that word just simply means to change. And to change, not just to change sake, it's a change with a purpose when people migrate or when geese migrate. And when the Holy Spirit leads us to change, He changes us with a purpose to lead us to a better land, a more fruitful land, a place where we multiply, a place that is really 
good for us. In fact, uh, just for the fun of it, I had uh, Jenny do some research this last week on geese, and, and they're pretty amazing animals. There's this goose called the bar-headed goose that migrates from Asia to India every year. And if you understand geography, what that means is it migrates over the Himalayas, including flying over the top of Mount Everest. These geese fly at 29,000 feet. Isn't that amazing? There's this, uh, the Arctic goose, when it migrates, it goes one way, 4,000 miles from the Arctic Circle to the Gulf of Mexico. Every year it makes that journey twice. The Canadian goose, which when we started the series, I was actually hoping the Canadian geese would have returned and we would have had to walk in with lots of stuff and dodging stuff from all of it. But it didn't quite pan out for the series. But, but the Canadian goose is amazing. It flies at 40 miles an hour. And actually the Canadian goose can go over 1,000 kilometers in a single day. Isn't that amazing? It means, that means it can go around the entire earth in 40 days, theoretically. I mean, that's just an amazing fact. And we can marvel at creation. We can be amazed by these facts from creation. And yet, and yet Jesus says to us, this Holy Spirit, this helper that he's sending to us to come to live in us, for us to experience him personally, to help us grow, to help us change He's basically saying to us, if we understand how to follow the Holy Spirit, I will help you in migrating from where you are to where you want to be. I will supply the power and the wisdom and everything you need to actually get there. The text today that we're going to look at is, is really a, a critical starting place. But it's not just the starting place. It gives us a picture of the journey and it gives us a picture of the, of, of the destination well. And really the lesson of today's text is simply this. It shows us how the Holy Spirit leads us in making decisions to change in life. Whether that decision is your very first faith decision to surrender your life to the leadership of Jesus or whether it's one of the many decisions we make along the way to grow, to change, to shed stuff that we want to shed and put on stuff that we feel like God wants us to put on to make our life better. Let's look at the core text today. It's in John 16, and it says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There's an obvious part of this text that I think probably hits all of us. And it really is the starting place for our journey. It's this word, convicts. Isn't that a pleasant word? Don't you just really like that word? When you think of convicts or conviction, being convicted, what kind of feelings does that bring to mind? What kind of images does that bring to mind? What kind of thoughts are conjured up in your mind? Most of my life, I've gotten stuck in thinking it was this. Notice the date is actually a couple days from now, so that's not a real picture. Just wanted to clarify that. Besides, it's not real because I don't have that much facial hair. I can't grow a beard like that. It's real. I just, I wish they could Photoshop my face. If I could look that good with a beard, I'd wear one. But Jesus says the Holy Spirit's purpose is to convict us right after he says it's better that I go away. So, 
It's better that I go away so you can have this Holy Spirit come so you can feel really guilty. Right? I mean, isn't that the way we respond to this verse most of the time? We think the Holy Spirit's role is to make us feel guilty about sin, to make us feel guilty about our lack of righteousness, to make us feel guilty about the impending judgment that we all know is going to come because we know we don't measure up and we're not good enough. Well, in one sense, that's true. And in another, it's absolutely not. And we're going to talk about both those today, but let's stick with the, in one sense, it's true for a moment. This last week in my own devotional time, I'm reading a reading plan that had me in Hosea. Hosea is a book in the Old Testament that is uh, written uh, by, uh, Hosea is a prophet, and he's, he's actually living at the time right before Israel ends up being defeated by Assyria and taken into exile. It's been many years as the story goes in the Old Testament of lots of disobedience to God and decline as a nation, and they're about to fall and cease to exist as a nation. And God comes to Hosea and says, I want you in your marriage to live out a beautiful love story, I think one of the most beautiful love stories in all of history, that shows the people of Israel who I am to them. And he says to Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. And this prostitute isn't going to remain faithful to you. This prostitute is going to continue to abandon you and go sleep with other people for money and go do all sorts of things and go get drunk and go all this stuff. They're not going to be faithful to you. And yet I want you to pursue her. I want you to love her. And we see Hosea pursuing her when she leaves and bringing her back. And we see him even going to the point of paying for her time so that he can have her with him, so that he can have a chance even to show her how faithful he's going to be and how loving he's going to be to her. I think it's one of the most beautiful love stories ever written in all of history. And we see that. And then in, in, in chapter 5, we see God come up with this, with this judgment. The Spirit of God comes to Hosea and says, I want to judge these people because of their sin. And it's not sin like we normally think about. I mean, normally we think about all these little things we do. But the sin that he actually judges them for is their unfaithfulness to him as their God. Their unfaithfulness expressed through their worship of the fertility gods. And in their world, these are actually, actually physical things that they built and worshipped, representing things. But in our world, we, we do the same thing. We just don't have the idols sitting on our counter that we worship. These fertility gods where they put sexual pleasure over what God says is sacred and beautiful about sex. We see them worshiping these idols of war and power because their pursuit of power, their pursuit of position, their pursuit of prestige is so important. And yet they forget that the God who brought them out of slavery and established them as a nation, as a great nation, we see them worshiping idols of, of prosperity and, and gold, pursuing financial riches and turning their backs on God, the God who left them leave Egypt with wealth untold and let them achieve wealth untold as a nation and provided for them, and yet they worship these other gods. And, and basically the accusation in Hosea is that they have prostituted themselves. They've denied the one who really supplies their needs, 
who really gives them meaning, who really loves them, and they're attributing that to other people. God gives them a gift, and they say, no, it was this God over here. The Spirit of God says in Hosea 5, he says, For I will be like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them in pieces and go away, and I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. Now, how does this apply? Okay, so Wendy and I have been married almost 26 years, and we had lots of fights, just like you, okay? And there have been a lot of those fights where, there's been a lot of those fights where I've just been, just really, just to put it bluntly, I've been sinful, I've just been a butthead. And the reality is, when I'm like that, I can't sense God's presence. I can't sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes in those times, especially when I've resisted and resisted and gotten hard-hearted about a certain issue of sin, God just sits back in his den, in his lair, waiting for me to come to the end of my rope, just letting my own path cause the pain, and waiting for me to seek him. You know, And I can tell you this, too. When Wendy and I fight, it certainly doesn't help for her or I to decide to convict the other one, does it? Have you ever tried that in your marriage? You're in sin. That really works, doesn't it? You need to repent. You're in sin. You did wrong. It's your problem. That really works, right? Um, I'm getting a little better at this, but... Wendy, I think, has been a whole lot more patient and a whole lot more wise than I am. A lot of times she'll disengage a little sooner and she'll pray that the Holy Spirit will convict me because that's what the text says his job is. Isn't that unfair? That's like listed in the unfair fighting manual. I got God on my side. He's going to get you, right? But that's what it says in the text. It's the Holy Spirit's job, right, to bring conviction to us. And the reality for all of us is if you're not experiencing the Holy Spirit, the presence of God being real and tangible in some way to you, it may be due to lack of, lack of, of, of experience or a lack of awareness or lack of, uh, it may be ignorance about the whole idea. But the reality is as well, it may also be due to the fact that the Holy Spirit has come to you repeatedly to convict you of sin and you've walked away and he's sitting in his lair waiting for you to come to him and seek him. You see, it's tempting, though, for us to let the verse just sit there. I mean, that's, that's kind of where I, I let it sit for most of my life. It was just God makes me feel guilty when I need to feel guilty and wants me to change, right? I mean, that's where we let it sit. And I didn't like that. Not that it really matters whether I like it or not, but I just didn't like this verse. But then I began to see something in this, and God began flipping the verse and its meaning on its head for me. And I began to experience the Holy Spirit in a motivating and wonderful way. You see, I realized, well, I realized we often read the Bible like we read emails, right? How many of you have ever written an email where you really had, you really wanted to help? You wanted, you even maybe had compassion in your heart for somebody who was going through a difficult time and you wrote an email to them and when they read it, they just thought you were a really blankety blank person, right? 
and weren't you hurt by the fact that they misunderstood your heart? Weren't you maybe even hurt by the fact that they didn't trust you enough to read it in a different tone? And yet I think for all of us humans, I guess that's everyone here, we tend to read the Bible like we read emails a lot of times. And we project on God a tone of heart that is different. We respond to his conviction of sin with this belligerence or insecurity. How dare you tell me what to do? Why, is this, why are you doing this arbitrary thing that's difficult or hurtful or painful? Or Rather than seeing the completely, amazingly extravagant, unselfish love and the pure good intent that God has. You see, when we read Hosea 5 in the context of chapters 1 and 4, where we see him painting this picture of how beautifully Hosea, representing God, pursues us. How beautifully he seeks to even buy our time patiently over and over and over again. It changes us, doesn't it? Last week we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. Not an it, is a person. And as a person, a person has feelings. In Ephesians 4.30 it says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. See, Hosea and Ephesians both teach us that, that sin desperately grieves God. Desperately grieves Him. It brings Him to tears as He makes His advances of love toward us and we continually turn our back as he provides for us and we continually give credit to our own efforts or somebody else's efforts for his provision. It's gut-wrenching grief on the part of God in his love for us. And as Hosea says, if we resist that conviction so long, then the spirit withdraws. It quenches his ability to bring blessing into our lives. Uh, But that's not the destination. We're just still at the starting point of this text. Because isn't it true that even when you have that kind of conviction from someone who is so extravagantly loving and patient, that it still doesn't really get rid of the grief or the shame in your life? In fact, doesn't it? When when somebody's so amazingly good to you and you are in sin, doesn't that sense of conviction even make you feel more guilty? that you are so far away from them and can't live up to that? And yet, as we look at this text further, I want, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to come to you and transfigure the entire way you see yourself, the way you see life, the way you think of others. Because this text really fuels freedom and joy and peace like nothing else can. Let's look at it again and then we'll break it down. So the text says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So let's break it down. First, He will convict of sin because they do not believe in me. I alluded to it earlier, but that's not how we think of sin, is it? We think of sin about the like the things we do and the things we don't do. I lied. I lusted. I got angry when I shouldn't have gotten angry, so I sinned. Or I saw somebody being abused and I didn't intervene. Or I knew I was supposed to be generous and I wasn't, and so because I didn't do something, I would sin. 
And truth be told, from a biblical perspective in the Old Testament and the law before Jesus came, that's the way it was. But what this text is saying to us is that since Jesus came, what did Jesus do? He came on the cross and he paid the price for every single sin, past, present, and future that we've ever committed. He's already paid that price. There is one sin and only one sin in life that ultimately matters. And it's how do we deal with who Jesus is in our life? Do we just treat him as a good moral teacher? Do we just treat him as a nice guy? Or do we believe that he's the creator and the God of the universe? Or do we believe that he's the creator and the God of the universe and we have surrendered and sworn absolute allegiance to him in faith? Now that's, that's a hard thing for us to swear because we all know we can't live up to that commitment, right? And that's the reason it's called a faith decision because we can't live up to that. But have we made a faith? The, the only sin that really matters in life right now, ultimately, is who is Jesus? And have we made a faith decision to follow him? Now, it's not that the other stuff that we normally think of sin is, is, isn't important anymore. It's still stuff that we should repent of and we should deal with as the Holy Spirit brings to mind because it's just like a, it's just like a good parent who sees their child doing something that we know is going to hurt them, we know it's going to mess their life up, and, and the Holy Spirit still, God still cries over those things and wants to bring health and wholeness and change in our lives, right? But there's really one and only one sin left for us to wrestle with. Now, this is the reason why when you hear, which you, you hear almost universally as you walk around in America today, you hear, oh, Christianity, I'm a Christian because I'm good. I'm a Christian because I do more good than bad. I'm a Christian because I'm basically a moral person. And you see, that just shows that we don't even understand the question Jesus is asking of us. And we certainly don't understand the work that Jesus has already done for us. We're asking the wrong question. The one question is, who is Jesus in your life? Will you follow him? Are you going to surrender your way to him? You know, the beauty of it is when we do surrender, he sends his spirit to us. And he takes us step by step from where we are, migrating to where we want to be, to better, to more abundant, to good stuff, just flying on his coattails. And it's a journey. It's a journey for us. He doesn't deal with all of the sins, though those little scatter things that we talk about. He doesn't deal with all of those in our life all at once. If he did, we'd be overwhelmed. We wouldn't be able to handle it. But the truth of this text is that the Holy Spirit comes along and convinces us, convicts us of just the next step toward freedom, toward wholeness, towards greater beauty in our lives. Just one step at a time. So this last week I heard a story of a, it's just a story told of a new believer coming to uh, their pastor and asking him a question. And he came and said, you know, pastor, I've been a, I've been addicted to cigarettes for a long time, and I'm not sure what I should do. What does God want me to do? 
And you all know that the traditional answer of the church over the last century would have been don't smoke, don't drink, and don't hang with those who do, right? I mean, that's just been really pretty a rigid thing and a stereotype that's been out there. Well, the pastor just looked at him and said, well, what do you think the Holy Spirit would want you to do? And he stopped, thought about it for a minute, prayed a minute, and all of a sudden, you know what he says? He said, I think the Holy Spirit's telling me to smoke the whole pack and enjoy it. And then it'll be my last pack. You know, so often we put ourselves as people of faith, as spouses, as friends, as parents, in the role of convicting other people of their sin. What if we just help people connect to the Holy Spirit more and let him speak about the next step and for us today, that begs us each individually the question, where is the Holy Spirit convicting you today? What's the next step he's inviting you to today? Is there an area that you've resisted for a while that he's been convicting you of that you need to take today in your journey to a better place? Such unfathomably patient love. Isn't it? We get to experience the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. He will convict of righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What does that mean? I mean, right, we've already talked about the fact that when we read that word, we think handcuffs. We think jail. We think bars. We think striped shirts. We think mugshot pictures, right? But, but if we start to flip that word convict, that actually has a positive meaning too, doesn't it? We admire people who have strong convictions and they live according to them, right? We could actually reword this accurately and say that this text is actually saying the Holy Spirit will absolutely convince you that you are righteous. Why? Because Jesus has gone from earth you see, we no longer see him in a visible way. He no longer interacts with us in a physical way where we get to see him pursuing us even when we're in the midst of our sin, loving us, pursuing us, not running away from us, not sitting in a judgment seat, but like the Samaritan woman who was divorced five, six times and an adulterer, pursuing her at the well and, and breaking all sorts of social norms. We don't get to see Jesus going to eat with the tax collectors at the biggest party in town just to love them and care for them and pursue them even while they're sinning. We don't get to see that. And so the, so the text is basically saying that we need something that gives us that same kind of confidence that he really is pursuing us in love. And our text last week said that, but I want to look at that even further this week because the context even shares more about what I'm trying to communicate right now. So let's look at that. Romans 5, verse 1 this time. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, 
but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That was our text last week, that last verse. But let's quickly break this down and take a little bit closer look at it. Therefore, it says in verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, since the decision to follow Jesus is the only sin decision we have to make, when we've made that decision, Jesus is saying we are completely justified. All of the other things, past, present, and future of sin that we have done have been legally removed from the ledger of the court of heaven. And he views us as though we are perfect, sinless, Now, we all know the reality, right? We struggle with that concept because we know the reality is that we're not sinless yet, right? But he addresses that as well in this text. In the next next part, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What an odd verse. Rejoice. Rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we do that? It's because pain exposes in us and others areas where he wants to convict us of sin and bring freedom. It exposes areas in life that are not fully redeemed, whether it's our own sin or whether it's others' sin or whether it's just the cruddy effects that sin has had on creation as a whole. Pain exposes those areas that are not fully redeemed yet. And the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit in this context still hurts. But it always produces an opportunity. It produces an opportunity for character. Character is simply aligning our heart, our attitudes, and our actions to the way God originally created us to live and to be. You see, when the Holy Spirit confronts sexual sin in us, He's giving us an opportunity to discover the beauty and the sacredness of sex as He created it for us in the greatest sense of the word, in the greatest sense of the action. When He confronts coarse talk and mocking in us, he's, He's giving us the opportunity for our hearts to be free of the bitterness and the pain and the disdain that we sometimes feel for people who have hurt us or people who disagree with us. And instead to let us live fully alive, soft, generous, kind. And it goes on in verse 5, it says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, convicted of righteousness means you are fully confident of this truth, this reality, that there's absolutely no single action of sin that you can do that will be held against you when you follow Him, when you've made the decision to follow Him, that God loves you perfectly. And there's this conviction that comes because of the intimate relationship of the Holy Spirit, and we know how good He is because His love has been poured out, and we trust that goodness, that it's not penalizing when He convicts us, that He's inviting us to greater beauty. So when the Holy Spirit shows up, We can have confidence. We can have confidence in the love of God. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to wait until you are living better to have confidence in God's love for you, 
to have confidence in his ability to work in and through your life. You don't have to wait to have that kind of confidence, to have that kind of freedom that comes from being absolutely, purely, and fully loved. You can live in that confidence and all the peace and the joy and the freedom that it brings right now. But the text goes on. He will convince us of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. There is in this statement a strong hint of something that really challenges the way a lot of us think about our Christian faith and the whole approach to it. You see, uh, Jesus himself talks a lot about preparing people for conflict, about preparing people for persecution. And then if you start getting into the whole theology of end times, end of the world, you start to get this whole warped picture a lot of times in Christian theology that said it's just going to get worse. Things are going to get harder. There's going to be lots of resistance. It's going to be awful. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches. We believe that. We've been taught that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In this passage, we see this liberating sense of confidence that he wants to bring to us. Because the Holy Spirit's role is to combat that negativity and give us a sense of victory. Now, victory can be this triumphalistic word, but don't you want victory in your life when it comes to living out your purpose and living a meaningful life? Don't you want victory when it comes to living a great marriage or being free of the things that plague you that you know are damaging to your life? Don't you want victory? And it says that the Holy Spirit's role is to bring that kind of victory, that liberating sense of confidence. It's not the kind of conviction in this passage that leads us into prison. It's the kind of conviction that leads us out of prison is what Jesus is talking about. And until we understand the confidence that Jesus wants to give us in this passage, we have a hard time even facing that whole conviction and invitation to repentance because without understanding the confidence that he wants to bring all we see is cold demanding harsh arbitrary and oftentimes impossible things that we can't live up to when conviction comes but the holy spirit brings conviction helps us live with a confident conviction in life that we're completely forgiven that we are extravagantly, completely loved, and, then, and a confidence in God's ability to succeed and accomplish that which is His will in our lives and the purpose for our lives to bring victory no matter what the resistance is we're facing. And it's confidence because of the intimate relationship we have with the Holy Spirit. We can't drum that up through p- words on paper on our own. And this is the reason today that if you're here and you're unconvinced about Jesus, you're not sure about your faith, or you've never taken that step to declare him the leader of your life and understood that, that's the reason why we say a lot of times, as many times as we can around here, it's not our role to convince you. Our role is to help lead you and walk with you until you experience the Holy Spirit in a way that you are convinced that he's real. That's the reason we say that, and that's the, that's the invitation we give to you, to you today. If you're convinced, not, not, not are all your questions answered. You'll never have all your questions answered. But are you convinced that God is real? 
And do you sense His Spirit coming to you, loving you, inviting you, wooing you, challenging you to follow Him? If you sense that today, then I want you to respond to that today and say yes to Jesus. Now, we're going to give you a chance in just a moment. But right now, what I want you to ask yourself, if you are one of the unconvinced who hasn't taken that decision to deal with that one and only thing, is Jesus really going to be the leader of your life? I want you to just now, while I talk to everybody else, I want you to sit and ignore me for a minute, okay? You have permission to ignore me. And I want you to just ask God, are you real and are you inviting me to make that decision today? And then wait and see what he asks you. Okay, so I'm going to talk to the rest of you. If you're here today and you're convinced in your faith and you are a follower of Jesus and you sense a distance between you and the Holy Spirit, then I want you to ask him right now, is there an area I've grieved you? Is there an area that you have brought conviction to me in the past that I have continually ignored that you want to break through today in? You see, this whole series is not a series about education. It's a series about experience. And I'd be remiss to not ask you that question. Because if you're sitting there having resisted over and over again the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and therefore you are in a position where he's sitting off in his lair and you can't experience him because he's waiting for you to come back and seek him, then I'd be remiss to not ask you that question. Because you won't experience him if you continue to resist his conviction in your life and follow him. So, ask yourself, and even as we go on in, uh, in what we're going to do here now in baptizing people in a moment, ask him, is there any way I've grieved you? And wait, and listen, and just respond with repentance. And then I want to invite you even, even more as you're watching the baptism. The whole beauty of baptism is, the, is so much the symbolism of being washed clean. There's so much other symbolism with it. But, but I want you not just to celebrate the people who are being baptized, but if you feel God leading you to repent of something, then I want, to, I want you to celebrate as they come out of the water the realization that you are completely clean. You can live with confidence and conviction in that today. And I want you to celebrate that with a sense of worship as we go on. So we have uh, three people right now who ahead of time have decided to be baptized. We had one person, Kevin Blackledge, in the first service who came, uh, met me at the front door and had his trunks and said, I'd love to be baptized. If you're here today and you've been sitting, ignoring me for the last couple of minutes and asking God, I'm unconvinced, are you real? And you're convinced that you need to make a choice to follow him today, then I want to invite you not only make that choice, but I want to invite you to come and be baptized. I don't care if you get your clothes wet. We've got a change of clothes back there you can change into. But we're just going to ask you as the worship team comes. They'll be here soon. I forgot to ask them to come, guys, so come now. I'm just going to fill time for a moment here. Um, we're going to ask you to go ahead and respond and come and meet myself or or there might be somebody else standing here as well and just say, I I need to make that decision to follow Christ. And we'll get you change of clothes, let you change clothes. We're just going to worship and uh, the baptisms will come up on the screen. If you're here in your family uh, and you would like to come back to be a part of baptism and see it not on the screens, then you can come right through where Jeremy's at right over here and join in the back. And we'd love to have you do that. 
So if you're here today and you were praying and God brought some sense of conviction to you that he wants you to respond to, I want you to turn to a spouse, a friend, uh, or, or just join one of us in prayer in the back over here in the kind of you had some seating area for prayer. Just confess that and let them pray that the Spirit of God would come to you and show you his love and pour himself out in your heart. If you're here today and you uh, didn't make a decision to follow Christ, you're still seeking that, that's fine. That's great. Seek. Do that. We'll pray for you. We'll, if you got questions, we'll help lead you to find God in a meaningful way. But let's go this week. Let's live confident that God is good. That when he brings his conviction, he's bringing us to a better place and confident in his love. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.